The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tritzak, and welcome back. Well, we're at the end of January now, Jackie, and I think it's time to stop saying Happy New Year. But the holiday season was accompanied by a lot of things that are of note. So we're going to continue to talk about those. There was all sorts of policy announcements by the federal government. I don't know, it was hydrogen and nuclear, and what else was there? Climate plan, clean fuel standard, but one that probably didn't get enough attention, I think, mm-hmm. was this new bill called C-15, which is also known as UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, which is some major legislation that was tabled around December 3rd. It is major legislation, and I think we need to learn much more about it, and we're delighted to have as our guest Dale Swampy. Dale is the president of the National Coalition of Chiefs. So welcome, Dale. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I always enjoy your emails that you send out, and I know you've got always got a lot to say. You recently had a uh, op-ed in one of the newspapers, so we'll post that, actually, Jackie. Yeah, we'll post a link to your op-ed. But before we get into that, Dale, can you tell us about the National Coalition of Chiefs, also known as the NCC? What are the objectives of the group, and how did you come to lead the group? The National Coalition Chiefs, or NCC, is kind of an offshoot of the... Um, Aboriginal Equity Partners on Northern Gateway. In that project, we were able to secure 10%. In the end, it was 33 to 30% of ownership for the 31 of the 40 communities along the right away. We were very proud of that. The chiefs established what they call the Aboriginal Equity Partners, and they met on a regular basis to negotiate with the funding partners on Northern Gateway for benefits. And they were able to, in the end, negotiate 33 and a third percent ownership, 15% of which was gifted to the uh, First Nations. And they would leverage that to purchase the other 18 and a third. So the chiefs and uh, Métis leaders are very proud of what they were able to do. They got, in addition to that, $2 billion worth of benefits from the project, which included about a billion dollars set aside to direct awards, contract awards for their community. So when the project was cancelled, of course, the chiefs were very upset. And we continued to meet on a weekly basis, and we decided to form what we call the National Coalition of Chiefs in order to send a message across Canada that the model that we used, the coalition model, was probably the best model to use in terms of negotiating for benefits on major projects. And we also saw the downturn, of course, in the oil and gas industry, mining industry, and all types of industries in northeastern, northwestern BC, the lumber industry, for example. So it was important for us to get the group together to advocate for those industries, including the oil and gas industry and the OSAM industry. And you continue to do that. So today we're going to talk about a number of topics. Your recent op-ed titled, uh, UNDRIP Will Slow Not Hasten Indigenous Developments. And then we want to finish with talking about Indigenous equity ownership on major projects. And unfortunately, The Gateway Project didn't go forward, but there are opportunities now with Trans Mountain, and we want to get an update from you on terms of your perspectives of the opportunities and challenges associated with Indigenous participation in that project. But let's start with UNDRIP. Now, as I said, the government introduced this new legislation on December 3rd of 2020, Bill C-15, 
And the goal of it is to recognize basic human rights of indigenous people and their right to self-determination. And when it was launched, our Minister of Justice and Attorney General, David Lamenti, said, this legislation is a significant step forward on the shared path to reconciliation for Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples alike. So these are all really positive statements, what the minister is saying. However, your recent op-ed raises concerns that the legislation is going to hurt Indigenous communities, and you say it's a symbolic gesture of reconciliation, should not come at the expense of food on the table for Indigenous people. Can you tell us about some of your concerns with the bill? Well, I think if the bill had actually allowed or enabled First Nations to get specific opportunity in major projects and natural resource projects, and that allowed us to obtain the kind of benefits that the chiefs are asking for, I think it would have been useful. But the act itself is very vague in that respect. We're concerned about the consultation. There's two basic concerns that First Nation leaders have. The first one is duty to consult, and when does that duty to consult get satisfied? And we thought perhaps Sundrup would be able to identify that and put some legislative guidelines in there to allow us to be able to proceed with projects and no one understands exactly what and who have the authority to represent First Nation peoples. And Sundrup doesn't do that right now. It doesn't uh, identify whether or not elected chiefs are the leaders of our people or hereditary chiefs, Métis leaders, and so forth, and how that process is defined. We think that since Canada is a democratic nation, that they should respect the democratically elected chiefs from First Nation. We hope that in the three-year action plan that they proposed, that those type of things will be incorporated. Right, and there is an action plan. I just want to clarify, so some of the concerns are that this could provide a veto and that it doesn't make it clear who makes the decision within an Indigenous community. But my question is, don't we already have issues with that if we look at the recent events around Coastal Gaslink and the wet and LNG pipeline conflict? It seemed it wasn't clear who was making the decision or if one group across that whole pipeline could make a decision to stop that project. How does C-15 make things worse than what we live with today? Well, it doesn't identify or um, create any certainty in that respect. We think that elected leaders should be the representative of First Nation people on reserves. We believe that in order to make a proper and informed decision, we elect leaders just like the uh, federal government elects leaders. And those leaders have to be well-informed about issues and concerns that they have regarding both legislation and work that's being done in their community. So we'd like that to continue, and we don't think that it should be expanded into a different type of cultural situation that's been created in Northeastern BC. You know, we respect the hereditary chief system from the Samson Cree Nation. Myself and uh, we do have a home fire circle that is similar to that type of cultural practice, and we respect and work with the elders and our leaders in the community in that respect. But in terms of making final decisions, we give it to the elected officials to become well informed about these projects. And I think UNDRIP is just not doing anything like that. I believe UNDRIP is good for nations around the world who do not have Aboriginal rights enforced into their constitution. Peru, for example, some five or seven years ago, incorporated their own UNDRIP legislation, and that created some value towards Indigenous people in that country because they never had any types of rights before. I think it's good for 
the world, so to speak. But we have our own human rights bill here in Canada. We have enforced treaty rights and title. If UNDRIP was going to have any value to us, then it would strengthen those rights and title or provide us with the rights mm-hmm. and title that the Chiefs have been asking for for years. But it doesn't do that. Yeah, and you're referring to the fact that we have Section 35 in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms that provides protection to the Indigenous and treaty rights of Indigenous people. And a lot of people are concerned that this will create conflict, that the bill should start with a reference that it is consistent with that section because that section has had a lot of clarity and meaning from past court decisions. And if we put this in place and say it's not consistent, it could open up many more legal challenges because we can't use the precedent set in that previous Charter of Rights. That's right. And um, an industry has got to understand the implications that can occur from um, Bill C-15. Trudeau has already said that this proposed legislation complements the work undertaken to date uh, to enact the new Impact Assessment Act of 2019. So it does have uh, some sort of legislative authority, which concerns all of us. Now, the idea that there's more bureaucracy to go through for project approval is going to take away all of the investment in Canada and our industry. Just to be clear, I mean, this is not just oil and gas. It has ramifications to all natural resource development. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you're pro-industry and natural resource development, but other Indigenous groups are not necessarily so here in Canada. So what are some of the positions of the various groups that don't support industrial projects? Well, I mean, those groups are funded by the environmental protection the ENGOs that have been developed over the past 10 or 15 years, since 2008. There are some 700 of those groups across North America. And we're just inundated to outrun by these, these groups because they have so much money. Mm-hmm. You know, if they were really concerned about the environment, they would go to China and try to stop the 200 or so coal-powered power plants that are being built there right now this year alone. I'll go to India. China sends people to India to teach them how to develop coal-powered power plants. It's just ridiculous. When we've got the most stringent environmental regulations in Canada, we should be the uh, top seller of oil and gas because Mm -hmm. we have those types of regulations. Dale, I wanted to ask you, you know, these groups that oppose the projects, and I would say, Peter, this isn't just going to affect natural resources projects. It will affect any major project. So, for example, to get to net zero... By 2050 in Canada, we may have to build large hydrogen pipelines across the country. We may have to build a big CO2 gathering network, these linear projects that affect a lot of groups. How would these groups view those types of projects? Are they opposed to fossil fuel projects? Would they view these types of projects differently and be more open to them? I don't think so. They're uncompromising. They do not want anything that has to do with fossil fuels involved with any green energy initiative. So I these would be green, green energy projects, so they wouldn't be fossil fuels. So it would be the same for them? They're kind of anti-development of any type? That's right. If you hear the rhetoric out there, the gas to hydrogen type projects, you know, when they develop initiatives to convert natural gas to methanol and then to hydrogen, those type of things are not accepted by the environmentalists because they want a uh, non-fossil fuel process to develop hydrogen, which is ridiculous. I mean, natural gas, the cleanest burning uh, fossil fuel that exists right now, and it's very cheap, incredibly available across the world. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the resource that we have to focus on. I mean, what you're describing, Dale, you know, something I've certainly 
sensed as we try and analyze oil and gas and energy at large, which necessarily always comes back to resources. And we've got provincial government, federal government, environmental groups, indigenous groups, the industry, and trying to get some sense of collaboration and cooperation and a smoothly functioning apparatus to get things done seems really difficult. I mean, it's just this ongoing tension. How do we overcome that? Because the Indigenous component is so fundamental. How do we change things? We just have to empower the leaders that are for the natural resource industry in Canada. The leadership that we put together in the amount of chiefs that attended our last conference, there were 81 of them. That, that group is growing larger and larger. The most important thing that leadership on First Nation reserves have is the poverty that's going on there mm. right now. We were in a meeting in Edmonton one time and uh, one of the chiefs said, we don't want government funding. We don't want to be a bureaucracy. We'll take the money for conferences and so forth. But he said, all you got to do is look around the city here. And he's talking about Edmonton. There are 17 different organizations that deal with First Nation and Métis employment and social services. None of those are available for our people on our reserve. I, I was amazed. I didn't realize there was that many. And he went on to say that the primary purpose as a bureaucracy is to ensure that they get their funding next year. Mm -hmm. So does it really help or assist our people getting out of poverty? And poverty is a real issue for us because it is the problem that creates all of our other social ills. Mm -hmm. You know, murder and missing women, alcohol and drug abuse. Know, everything that plagues our society. And we're out there to get our people back to work. And the only way to do that is to cooperate with the biggest industry in Canada. And that's our natural resource industry. You talked about the Gateway Project, the Northern Gateway. And you mentioned you, know, you had 31 of 40 communities on board with that. And there are other examples of resource development projects where you get the clear majority of Indigenous groups in agreement but it just seems like you almost have to get 100% a unanimous position to get anything done, which is almost impossible to get everybody to agree. How do you overcome that as well? Well, I think uh, Chief Ellis Ross said it best. At the time when he was chief, he looked across the corridor of the pipe across BC and didn't really see anybody in support of our project. We didn't really empower our chiefs to speak publicly about the project even though we had them signed on as potential owners of the pipeline. I think we need industry to empower First Nations. I think we're behind probably 10 or 12 years behind the environmentalists right now. They have a really big step ahead of us by going on to First Nation reserves and convincing them that it's important to protect the environment rather than uh, join with the biggest industry in Canada. And I just don't see industry doing that. I mean, we've been around for three years now, and we attend certain project and regulatory meetings. And First Nation or Aboriginal consultation seems to be the last issue they're discussing. They've got to understand the reason they're in this situation and the reason they complain about such a, a large and comprehensive regulatory regime is because they didn't support First Nation people. They were run over 150 years of natural resource developments and First Nations weren't involved in it. Now we want to be, and industry has to empower that. they got to get First Nations involved as participants, perhaps equity participants, and even lead projects, own them. We just 
read uh, Chief Terry Paul's uh, op-ed in the uh, Logan Mail and talked about what he's done for his community, uh, purchasing the uh, one of the biggest fishing industry companies in uh, Nova Scotia. Chief Terrence Paul has been a very good friend of ours, and he's very active in, in getting his First Nation opportunities, doing a great job out there. And there are a lot more chiefs like that across the country. So you're saying that we got to get projects done differently. I think a lot of people recognize that, where we get First Nation involvement, Indigenous involvement early in the project, potentially involved in ownership of the project. I want to get to that with the Trans Mountain, but I want to just wrap up on UNDRIP at Bill C-15. I've heard that there wasn't very much, or there's concern there wasn't enough consultation with Indigenous people about this bill. And it seems that it could add even more uncertainty to a process that's already got uncertainty associated with it. If you want to build a big project in Canada, just look at the facts, right? There's been problems on some of these big projects, and this could make it worse. So what do you think the government should do to proceed with the bill? Well, I think we're putting that cart before the horse on the process that the government has initiated. We met with Minister Lamenti last year. A group of chiefs came up to um, Canada Place in Calgary here, and we met for an hour talking about UNDRIP. Most of the chiefs that attended were part of our group. And they basically said they did want UNDRIP to be a bureaucracy that would slow us down. They wanted UNDRIP to become something that will empower their ability to be participants in major projects. One of them even made an example of Alaska and their 13 bills of Congress. Their 13 bills outline the responsibility of natural resource companies to, to allow First Nations to have 50% ownership in all those projects that moving forward, you know. And that's something that Indigenous people have been looking for for years. Indigenous leaders have been looking for for years. Revenue sharing. Revenue sharing was resolved with Northern Gateway by giving them um, gifted ownership in uh, the pipeline. 15% ownership. Ownership that you didn't have to put a down payment for or find financing for. That was something that had real value for the chiefs. I think that's what they want. They want a piece of the natural resource industry, something that They've been asking for decades. I think that's important. The problem with the legislation is that they describe a three-year action plan. Well, that three-year action plan should have been the first step. Get the three-year action plan, go across the country, consult with all the chiefs, and then draft the legislation. Yeah, that's a good point. Why wouldn't you do that? And it is kind of ironic that a bill that's supposed to be increasing the rights and freedoms of Indigenous people and increasing consultation didn't actually do a lot of consultation before they put the bill out. That's right. And um, I mean, Trudeau has said that under was supposed to be is a vehicle that will bring greater clarity and capacity to enhance the ability of Indigenous people to participate in and benefit from economic development opportunity. Hmm. I just don't see it like that. It does seem to make a lot of sense to take that three-year action plan, do the work, and then put the legislation out after that to me. Right. Let's get back to pipelines for a minute. So we know Northern Gateway has been shelved because of the tanker ban or blockaded or whatever you want to call it. And now we have Trans Mountain, which is under construction. We're hearing that the Canadian government is engaging with Indigenous groups about equity ownership in the pipeline. Can you give us a sense of where that's at and what the interest is amongst the Indigenous groups? Department of Finance and federal government owns the pipeline through their corporation. And I think they're very careful in meeting with the 129 affected community in what they want to do with the pipeline. They want to lead the communities on 
But they made a step, which I, I think is good. They're developing a forum to allow the uh, 129 community, their leadership, to get together and discuss what they would like to do with the project. Would they like to purchase it? If they do, how much? So forth. And if they do purchase it, are the outstanding long-term agreements of some two, $300 million worth of mm-hmm. agreements, are they still going to be in place? If you own the pipeline, are you still going to have to pay yourself in these benefit agreements? Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of thing. You know, what about the financing? You know, you don't have the nine producers who are part of Arlington Gateway ownership in this pipeline. So you don't have the financial backing of uh, the companies that are going to put the oil in the pipe. Right. Like you had mentioned, you got under Northern Gateway, 15% of the equity was given as a gift. Here you're looking at having to pay for all the equity potentially. Right. I don't know what kind of concessions the federal government's willing to give in that respect. You know, you'd said the 129 affected communities are involved in the discussion. So today, to participate, you would have to be along the right-of-way of the pipeline. Is that the idea? I think the government made a good move by telling the 129 communities to meet in a forum and discuss exactly who should benefit and how they should benefit. I'm sure that the 15 or so communities who have pipe actually going through their lands are going to be priority communities. They're going to have more benefits than communities who do not have the pipeline going through their lands. Communities that are within 50 or 80 kilometers radius of the pipe may have more access to benefits than communities that are, you know, 100 or 200 kilometers away because the impact is negligible then. But in the end, if it's purchased by the communities, I don't think there should be too much in terms of difference, in terms of benefits for each community because they're taking their risk just like anybody else when they sign up as owners. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to this idea of, you know, what does it take in terms of consensus so 129 communities, 15 are a priority because they're close. It seems that uh, it's good that there's discussions going on and the groups are being convened. But this idea of is a majority enough or do you need 100% agreement amongst all the communities to get something done? And how does that all relate back to this UNDRIP? I think there's just so much confusion in terms of getting back to that broader question that I had earlier of like, what's it going to take to get things done and consensus-oriented culture in this country rather than an antagonistic culture, mm-hmm. which we have right now. A little bit of a virtuous circle. You know, if we can yeah. get people to benefit from these projects and then at the same time sure. help with the serious poverty issue on the reserves. And balance and, environment and everything else. Yeah. Anyway, Dale, what do you think? Well, I like to use, um, you know, the example that we have right now with oil and gas in Canada. The federal government has constitutionally royalty structure for First Nations if they have resources on their own reserve. And they created the Indian Oil and Gap Canada Group to protect First Nations, to make sure that they get a proper royalty regime on their assets there, on their reserve. And from that, the Indian Resource Council was formed of First Nation producers, First Nations that had production on their lands to get together and to partner with other First Nation communities and other corporations, enhance their ability to be able to take advantage of oil and gas resources on their reserve. And IRC is becoming more prominent in terms of what happens in their traditional territories as well. And I think we take that 
another step forward by establishing a, a utilities group, a utilities regulatory group that manages things like oil pipelines, gas pipelines, water pipelines, infrastructure, and so forth. And that group be similar to uh, IOGC, it'd be run by First Nations. So they can offer recommendations of models for First Nations affected by projects in their region. And I think that's the answer. Have a utilities regulatory body that's similar to IOGC, have a, uh, a mining you know, regulatory body, have a forestry regulatory body that's all Indigenous, so that the government and proponents can go up to them and say, we'd like to build this. What do you think? Well, thank you for that constructive mm-hmm. idea. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for sharing your concerns around C-15. I do hope that it can get clarity that it needs and that this action plan maybe can be used to think about some structures that will create those opportunities for equity partnerships and major projects and get rid of some of the risk associated with these major projects in Canada. So we really appreciate you sharing your concerns and your, uh, your constructive ideas as well. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Dale. Thank you, and thanks to our listeners. If you enjoyed this show, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. 